Hi guys, it's Susan, the Sustainable Sue behind Sustainable Productivity Podcast. We have a guest on the podcast today, and I will bring her in in a second to introduce herself, but I want to tell you how Trisha and I met before I get her on the mic. So remember a few episodes ago when I was in a creative slump and I had coffee with a friend and as we left, a woman asked if my friend and I were writers. Well, Trisha is that woman. I loved her mojo and immediately wanted you to meet her. Then she told me she was a poet who recently relocated to my city from LA. And I cannot tell you how fast my inner critic jumped in to tell me Trisha would never agree to talk to me and I should not even ask. Well, I got brave and I asked Trisha to get on the mic with me and that is what you're gonna hear today. So let's get started. Are you stuck in a rat race of schedules, to-do lists, and other people's priorities? Maybe you can't even remember when the last time you felt fully engaged with your body, your mind, and your surroundings. If this resonates with you, then you are in the right place. I am Susan Sanders, and I'm here to teach you about sustainable productivity. Each week, I'll be coming to your ears with lessons to create a life that you can fully engage with. Some weeks will be bite-sized moments of inspiration and sharing. Other weeks will include guests and more in-depth looks at doing the right things in a way that you can maintain over time. Let's get started. Tricia Faye Hefner is an award-winning author, creativity coach, and speaker one of the few people to hold a master's degree in humanistic psychology with a specialization in creative studies, Trisha uses research-based methods to help others develop their most authentic creative abilities, both for the sake of artistic expression and personal well-being. She often tells her classes that she began writing only so she could have the credentials to teach workshops to other innovative writers and poets. Trisha joins the Sustainable Productivity Podcast to tell us more about the science and psychology of creativity. Welcome to the Sustainable Productivity Podcast. I am your host, Susan Sanders, and today we have a guest with us. Trisha, I'm going to let you tell us your background in a second, but I, I uh, before we got on today, I did a bit of an off-air intro where I told listeners about my imposter syndrome rearing its ugly head the first time we met. Um, You probably remember that the the second time, at least when I told you, you know, I was sure this award-winning published poet from LA was going to be way too busy to get on the podcast, to have coffee, whatever, you know, and I I almost didn't ask. Um, And, you know, really, I'm more of a poetry seeker. And I often Mm -hmm. tell people I'm not smart enough to understand it. And I was really um, drawn to several things that you said in your podcast, which, you know, of course, we can link to in in the show notes with all things, Tricia. But (laughs) I think you have so much to offer in the arena of sustainable productivity I just knew I had to get over myself because of everything that I heard you tell all of the other poets. So thank you for letting me fumble and be a weirdo (laughs) and for being on today. So let's start with like the 10,000 foot view of who you are, how you spend your days. Tell us about Tricia. Oh my goodness. First of all, Susan, thank you so much um, (laughs) for having me on here and for your introduction. I have always dreamed of being someone that people were intimidated to talk to. 
and I don't think I've ever really achieved that until now. So I'm delighted. Is that uh, on your to... bingo card? You can cross that off. It's, you know, it's never been officially on my bucket list exactly because it's so ephemeral, but I think <laughs> it's, it's more like it was kind of a less than fully conscious goal mm. to have people go like, mm, she's so, but the, you know, the truth of it is that, um, especially being a writer in Los Angeles, you really are just like one of a thousand minnows mm. in a very big pond. And uh, it can sound impressive. I know when I when I was newer to writing and I'd meet people who had several books out, I definitely felt that way. And now that I'm a little bit further down the road on that journey, I do realize like, you know, it's not that big a deal. Um, you know, especially in LA meeting people who have books of poetry and books in general published, like there's a lot of us and most of us just teach at universities or teach at, you know, high school. And then we, I, I know so many writers who have multiple, very impressive awards and what do they do with their free time? Well, you know, they're having kids throwing spit wads at them at junior high classes. Right. Um, you know, most of us writers make our living by teaching or by doing something else that pays the bills. So, you know, it's, it, and I think that's, in many ways, that's a good thing. It gives you an opportunity to gather inspiration, to find what, you know, regular people are doing and what what everyone's concerns are. And we get to have a voice that, um, you know, is engaged with the public because we are the public. So I've, I've tended to find that to be, uh, you know, quite workable as a writer. Um, and I also wanted to say, I know you said that you didn't feel that you were smart enough to write poetry and we can get into that because a lot of the work that I do is getting people into their writing and their creativity and getting beyond fear and uh their um you know getting beyond the inner critic uh, I just posted something today this is a quote from George Sand who wrote he or she uh they let's say they who draws noble delights from sentiments of poetry is a true poet though they have never written a line in all their life. Mm. Uh, I didn't think about that and and you specifically when I posted that this morning, but I guess maybe on some unconscious level, uh, I knew you needed to hear it. Absolutely. Well, I, there are about 10 different rabbit holes that I want to jump down um, <laughs> <laughs> just from that introduction. But let me back up a second and start this episode the way we always do with this week's SPM, our Sustainable Productivity Moment. Our SPM is something that makes life sustainably productive. The goal is to highlight small things, persons, people, or persons, places, things, whatever it might be, that help us create a life we don't want to escape from or numb from. Mm -hmm. So, Tricia, I'm going to put you on the hot seat today. And everybody, I, I did give her a fair warning that I, of this hot seat. So it's more <laughs> of a lukewarm seat, I guess. What is making life sustainably productive for you these days? Honestly, I think the biggest thing that I can encourage people to do, and this is not about what I did today, but something I did three years ago is I moved out of L.A. to Costa Rica. And I started making my business, which was an in-person business, an online business. And obviously, like, you know, your money, your American dollars can go much farther in a place like Costa Rica. Um, and also, you know, I, I will say about Costa Rica, you know, they have a really healthy relationship to tourism um, and a very healthy uh, 
relationship to nature and the economy too. So, I mean, living down there, I felt that our dollar went farther. And then it was also like, you know, working to create, um, you know, a culture in Costa Rica where everyone benefits, um, mm. for the, you know, I won't make this a whole history lesson on Costa Rica, <laughs> but they're one of the oldest democracies in the region and they're pretty much a democratic socialist country. And I think it was in the seventies, they, uh, took all the money out of their military funding and put it into education. So education is publicly wow. funded. Um, healthcare is publicly funded. So, you know, when you're, when you're, funneling your American or Canadian or European dollars down there. It's, it's going to um, creating a culture of wellness that I think benefits everyone. So that was a win, win, win situation for us. It wasn't perfect. You know, definitely make sure you have a sustainable online income source before you go do that. Uh, but I will say like, once we did that, it definitely made life a lot um financially a lot easier to manage. Mm, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And that's a nice balance of working to live and living to work, which is yep. exactly what we're trying to get at here and not just have work running us into the ground. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Good. A lot of what I'm doing right now, um, I was very reluctant to come back. <laughs> and a lot of what I'm doing right now is trying to take those lessons that I learned. And some of them you can definitely incorporate i think even coming back to the united states others are definitely much harder so um yeah i want to just give that caveat to everybody you don't have to move to the tropics but uh but it certainly <laughs> helps if you can yes yeah i hear that and you know while we can't all make drastic shifts like that i think one of the things that i heard uh, and read in a lot of your work is trying to find small ways to move forward both with how you're defining productivity whether it's through your writing as a poet or as a nonfiction writer like myself or like you were just saying with life um you know we kind of talked offline in the last couple of weeks about you know different things you and your husband are doing so i want to talk a little bit about themes surrounding how you personally and professionally define productivity and what sustainability means for your productivity these days, especially relocating from Costa Rica to Greensboro. Mm -hmm. um, so why, why poetry? What is it that, um, how did you land in that? I'm gonna call it a genre, but I mean, I just think it's <laughs> that, that vibe that, um, why poetry? You know, that's a longer story, but I'll try to summarize and I'll, I'll just say, um, I've always been quite creative. I started out in performing arts. That's what I wanted to do. And, um, I, I also, when I was probably 10, tried writing my first novel. Uh, I tend to be the kind of person where if I see it, I want to see if I can also make it. And, mm. um, also kind of grew up in the farm in a backwoodsy area where there wasn't a lot to do so you know if you wanted to have any fun you made it yourself literally you know so uh when when i wanted to start really creating i tried playwriting i tried novel writing and i just found that i i don't think i've ever had writer's block but i have had writer's adhd uh and i would find myself just 
starting a project and then changing it and changing it. Poetry just worked really well with my natural tendencies. Um, I want to finish something. I want to start something new. You can do that in a poem. Mm-hmm. You can write about sloths one day and the next day, you know, well, what, what's life like on Mars? You know, and you don't <laughs> have to abandon your 300 page novel. You, you finish your you know, narrative poem about seeing the sloth and now you can start something totally new uh, and it's allowed and you don't have to wait, you know, three years or five years or 10 years to finish something and publish it and see if it's any good. Like you can write it, finish it today, send it out tomorrow. So, I mean, a lot of it was just really kind of accepting and embracing um, the way that my mind works and, uh, and then of course there's an educational component about it, obviously. So I, you know, I was a good student and I always thought maybe I would want to be a teacher. So obviously like marrying that with teaching, with psychology, it just sort of allowed me to explore all the different areas of interest that I have and um, kind of braid them together into one career path. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that career path because I'm super interested mm-hmm. in your master's degree and the the official is humanist, human and humanistic psychology. But did you create the specialization in creative studies? No. And I can tell you a little bit about that. I went to uh, a school called Saybrook for my master's degree. I thought I had been a junior high and high school teacher for a long time I mean not that long it's like four years but to me it feels like it'd be a long time I come from a family of teachers but I don't know how they do it (laughs) I always say like for every one year I've spent with one student uh that adds a year to my life or takes a year off of my life so (laughs) it ages you yeah 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 if I had 10 students for a year that year was 10 years. So I think at this point I might be 3000 years old. <laughs> right. That's how I feel. So after, you know, just after three years, I, I really liked what I was doing too. I love being a teacher. I love having a large classroom and lots of people to talk with, but you don't get the one-on-one and you can't do so much in-depth work. And I was finding that I had a lot of students that needed more one-on-one stuff. And I was wondering if I could really even help them in a larger classroom setting. So I went to get a master's degree in psychology and uh, was, was really interested in humanistic psychology. And um, I thought, you know, a year into my program, I remember just very distinctly having a conversation with someone and use the talk techniques I was learning. And, and after a few minutes of talking with her, she's like, well, thank you for talking this out with me. I think I understand what's going on and what I should do. And just thank you for talking with me. And I, she walked away and I was glad that, that our talk had helped, but I thought, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. That was not fun (laughs) for me. Um, You know, and I thought I want to help people and I want to help them with their problems and help them gain clarity, but I need them to tell me stories that are more interesting than that. Mm. Um, I hope this person never finds out she was the person, you know, she was an interesting, entertaining person herself. So it's nothing against her. I was just like, I really, well, she did you a favor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I just thought like, I'd really rather be reading a novel or hearing a poem or hear people talk to me about their challenges in a more interesting format. 
So then I switched over to the the specialization in creativity studies. So Saybrook, where I went, already did have that program. Um, and I knew that we had that program, but I, I really thought I wanted to be more of a therapeutic context. And then after a year in that program, I said, I got to listen to what I'm, you know, what I'm really feeling. And what I'm really feeling is I, I, in my head, I would really like to help people be emotionally healthier and live their best lives and overcome trauma and, you know, raise their kids better and feel more love and all that stuff. But I don't care about any of that stuff nearly as much as I care about, you know, verb, uh, verb tenses and exciting language and a narrative arc and building to a, you know, I just had to listen to that part and felt like, you know, maybe that's a little superficial or whatever, but I got to honor that. And, um, and so I felt like, I had to go into the psychology of creativity. And and from there, the research is much more geared towards how do you have a creative breakthrough? Um, how can we set the optimum conditions for creativity? It's not just about creating poetry or even a novel or a film. Uh, a lot of the psychology of creativity is the study of how we create optimum circumstances to have a breakthrough in the sciences, mm -hmm. you know, in math. Um, and this is a little... This is a little messed up in my humble opinion, but I think we as a country in the United States started putting energy and time and money into research during World War II because we as a society decided we need to be creative in the sciences so that we can discover the next atom bomb uh, before the Russians do. And, you know, so that's sort of how the psychology of creativity as a field was born. I have different reasons for wanting to study it, of course. Yes. Um, oh, that's but, such you know, an interesting take. To, yeah, I need to give that. I mean, isn't that some food for thought there, you know? Yeah, that's really quite disturbing, actually. <laughs> um, especially as much as we see uh, music, arts, you know, just general fine arts in general, the, the funding and the programming being diminished. Yes. Um, and, you know, most people think, or often people think, I won't say most, that science and creativity don't mix. And yeah. I disagree with that. And I'd really like to hear if you have um, examples of that or, you know, it sounds like you disagree as well. I mean, it's sort of a chicken and of the course. egg. What comes first, science or creativity? Um, absolutely and why can't we have both absolutely um, i mean and i i've written about this uh quite a bit i feel like a lot of you know, there's so many different references and ways to approach this topic too um i feel like a lot of the times artists want to maintain that air of mystery and maybe they have it themselves we have it ourselves we and you know the the thing about creativity especially is that um you don't know what's going to happen and if I wanted to say, like, let's build a bridge, we can look at bridges that have been built before, we can come up with a formula, and there's a certain extent of uh, repeatability that comes. And with math and science, in many ways, we, we know how to teach someone to make something because we know that it worked before. And with creativity, you are specifically asking, how do we create something 
that hasn't been created before. So there's like a lack of ability to control that. And I think that's a big part of why it's necessary. The world is changing a lot. We have a lot of things that are uncontrollable, a lot of challenges for which we don't yet have the solutions. And so we can't rely on a teacher or someone from the past to tell us how to deal with it. The thing about the study of creativity is it allows you to look at what are the conditions for finding a solution? Um, how can we ask certain questions? How can we make a person feel uh, safe and motivated and supported for tackling a an issue, a new issue? But we can't say, how are we going to teach them to do this? Because we don't know. We don't know. It requires a whole lot of humility. Um, and I've always been frustrated teaching in schools because, you know, like the schools, you're trained as a teacher, depending on which school you go to. But I remember working in one school where the question was always, what do I as a teacher want my students to, to know? And as a creative thinker, it's entirely backwards to ask that question. You want to ask the question, what do we not know? What do we need to know? Yeah. And what are the kids asking about? Where, are those, where does the curiosity lie? Yes. Yeah. And I, I could not work and I probably burned some bridges and broke some hearts and broke some brains and, and things because I had a real hard time fitting into that mold. Um, and now, you know, now I want to spend a lot more time um, rethinking how we build situations where we can um, be more creative and not just in the arts, you know, not just because we want to create more interesting pictures or poems or what have you, but because these principles can really apply to solving some of our social, economic, um, scientific issues. I, I think I may have gotten a little far afield from where we started, uh, creativity and science are they separate no they're not <laughs> and i am not going to edit out any of what you just said because i think the i would have had you elaborate so you just kind of gave the the final answer there at the end but i love how you describe poetry salon your online work a gym membership for your muse because i think about when we sit down to be creative like okay well here's your blank canvas and your paints go ahead and paint like mm -hmm. uh, and you know i just it's like this record scratch um yes. or you know my husband is in a band and they do covers but he noodled around a little bit with writing his own songs but it's things that come in when you least expect them you don't just sit down and expect your muse if you know i'm using that term correctly to show up Mm -hmm. It's about setting that up, you know, when you talk about the habits, the techniques, the support um, in order to push through to what we consider to be that productive end. I'm using that in quotes mm -hmm. of something published, something finished, um, whatever the, the definition of done is, is what we call that in project management. So I, I think there's so much linkage between the, the science and the arts. With the, let me ask this next question, kind of pivot us a little bit with the idea that you can't just, you know, sit down and demand creativity. So 
is there something about like your literal environment that inspires or motivates you? Um, you had mentioned, you know, the coffee shop where we originally met, you know, working outside in the, in their back deck, which is a gorgeous area. Yes. Um, how do you take inspiration and motivation from just the literal stuff around you, whether it's nature or not, but you know, the environment? Absolutely. I think I, I would say, uh, for me, I am very inspired by my location and I love to travel and I get very interested in places, even if I'm not able to travel to those places. Um, but the newness of physical experience usually sparks interest, gets my interest. Uh, so to me, like if I'm going to a new place, I have to write about it to process all of that information. Um, and probably like the best way to get me, if I had writer's block or if I were lacking in ideas, the best thing I could probably do would be to get in the car and even just go like on a day trip somewhere else mm -hmm. and get my imagination going. Um, and I think in many ways that's because we're creativity can be born from our connection with the unknown or our encountering the unknown. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mark Doty has a wonderful book, If You Are a Poet, uh, The Art of Imagination. Um, and I think, I, I hope I'm doing it justice here, but he talks about how, how we can find inspiration from animals because animals don't speak. So it gets our imagination going and we have to ask these questions like, well, what are they thinking? Because they can't tell us. So that means we have to fill in the details or answer the questions to come up with hypothetical possible answers. So, you know, encountering any new stimuli that doesn't have, um, you know, a set, a set answer to the questions it raises is always really pivotal for igniting creativity for me. Mm -hmm. um, other people find it in other places. I mean, you can... <laughs> ask a question about your past. Why did this person behave that way? I mean, that could and give you the same motivation, the same, um, you know, encounter with a, an impossible to answer question. Uh, and that could keep you busy for days or weeks or lifetimes. That's true. <laughs> Trying to put uh, my words and someone else's actions together and, you know, second guessing all of that. That's, yeah, that, that that's a... It, we'll call it a very, very creative exercise right there. Well, and it's, it's why we write about romance so much, too. It's just, you know, like, he looked at me this way. What do you think that meant? Um, <laughs> you know, that provides endless amount of fodder for the imagination as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's almost like um, in completely engaging in something different, or and or completely disengaging from where you might be stuck we'll say because i don't know how many times i'll feel like whatever it is that i'm writing is 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 getting nowhere it's got a bunch of holes in it and then i might just put it away for a day or two go for a walk or you know literally just not look at it for a day or two um and then inevitably those holes can be be filled whether i've been thinking about it or not Yes. Um, yeah. The brain is a, is a magical place. That's for sure. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. 
Yes. Terrific book. Also, it started out as a BBC radio series. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who isn't familiar, but I'll just say that there's a point where a computer, um, a super genius computer uh, is fed a question. The characters feed this question into the computer and then they have a question like, should we have asked the computer this question? Do we really want to know the answer? And the computer basically says, listen, my circuits are engaged in this. It doesn't matter if you turn me off or anything else. I am programmed and designed to compute the answer to this question. So you might as well go away and come back when I have the answer. Uh, Cause it's irrevocable at this point. And I think sometimes our minds, my, my mind is a little obsessive. Um, and sometimes when a thought question gets dropped in, it's like my brain's going to think about it until it comes up with the right answer, whether I like it or not. So I might as well go skiing. And, uh, you know, in fact, and I've talked about this before too, is like, you know, I sometimes uh, will think, well, I should be working, working at a desk, mm. exerting effort, whatever. Uh, and if I don't, well, I'm bad for not working, but I, I've kind of tried to convince myself, you know, um, Going to the grocery store, shopping, walking on the beach, whatever, that's allowing my less than conscious mind to work this out. So it counts as working. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's one o'clock on Tuesday and I haven't gotten anything done all week, but I'm not getting somewhere in a creative project, going for a walk is a perfectly legitimate form of work because I know that, you know, something is going to be working even if I'm consciously not working. And so I can log those hours in my little capitalist work <laughs> work thing, my punch in, punch out time card. I get to log those hours and um, and pat myself on the back for being a productive member of society. Yes, yes. The uh, worker that toils away at the desk for 18 hours because see how dedicated I am. I mm-hmm. write for 18 hours a day or whatever. Yep. Um, so let, let's get into some of the brain stuff and that, that self-talk or um, uh, we, we went into a little bit more detail about the Enneagram when we were talking in person. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about competing priorities. I know there are a lot of things that, that you juggle personally and professionally, and you had really given me a, a great piece of coaching about you know, the, the three-brained octopus, so I could have my eight mm-hmm. legs, egg, legs, arms, tentacles, all Tentacle, juggling yeah. something that all three of my brains are working on something different, so I can multitask. That's not really competing priorities, but then mm-hmm. I also heard you mention a an analogy about the hydra, where you chop off one <laughs> and then elders grow, and that seemed a little bit more evil than the three-brained octopus. <laughs> Um, so it is. how do you really, um, let's see, how do I want to ask this? Um, like not bullshit yourself and identify, okay, I'm self-sabotaging here. I'm procrastinating. No, I'm not. This is one of the three brains of the octopus coming <laughs> up here. How do you, as a professional writer, uh, and I think this, you know, even if a listener is not a writer, 
we all have our profession and we all bullshit yes. ourselves. So how do you call yourself out on that um, and make sure that you stay moving forward in a, in a productive way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, one thing that might be unique to some creative people is that often we don't have deadlines. We don't have accountability. Um, I, I might work on something for a long time and never get, uh, paid for it, never have anyone notice it. And so it's very easy for me to not finish a thing. Um, I will say, I think the, the best, most useful thing I do have is, uh, deadlines. And also, I will also say my creative writing community, which I, um, do get paid for. I, I facilitate creative writing workshops and that holds me accountable for showing up. And even on days when I don't want to show up, I have to because I have other people to whom I am accountable. And that probably has kept me super productive. Now, mm. producing something and finishing something are two different things. So I can, I am sort of, you know, more or less have set up the ideal circumstances for me to write on a regular basis and to be accountable to producing something, at least a rough draft, um, almost every day of the week. Finishing it, submitting it, sending it out, uh, getting it published, there's, there's very little accountability for that. I do have a monthly group that meets, that I facilitate, um, called a submission support group, where folks show up and we um, encourage and help one another submit our work for publication. So that's, that's definitely helped there. Um, so I would say like, you know, any kind of regular accountability and accountability partners mm -hmm. and routine can absolutely help. Uh, the other thing I would say, you know, for me, part, part of what really helps is being a poet. It's very allowed to start a project, abandon it, start another project, abandon it. And you just keep doing that. And then you rotate back and finish like one page at a time. So having those small projects is also super helpful for me. Um, but when it comes to larger projects, like let's say finishing a book, you know, there's not, I'm not sure that I have a magic formula for that. Um, I do have a friend who I feel is much better at it and I rely on her peer pressure sometimes. <laughs> uh, you know, she finished a book a couple of years ago and I already wanted to finish a full book and I did. And now she's finished her second book and is sending it out for publication. Meanwhile, I have, I think, let's say three um, poetry collections that are not finished and like three other longer pieces of prose that are also not finished and her finishing another one makes me go like okay we're about the same age we started writing about the same time maybe I should finish one of those other books and start sending it out and I look at um deadlines and and uh presses that are calling for submissions and so they'll say like you know uh this contest is open January 1st, closes January 30th, and they're a press that I'm interested in. And so I'll go look at my work and say, like, let's see if we can get that to some form of being finished in that time frame.
Mm-hmm. And um, and I'll reference my own podcast. Uh, we did an interview with Deshaun McKinney, who has a book called Father Forgive Me, out from Black Sunflower Press. I listened talked- to that episode. Yes. Oh, yes. Go yes, ahead. That one was especially good for a podcast like yours because he yeah. talks about having uh, a deadline and trying to write a whole book. You know, in twenty four hours, he had some other work that was already finished, so he wasn't trying to completely start from scratch and write it in 24 hours but he's trying to finish it in 24 hours and he did and that book was accepted and published that's mm-hmm. very rare and i would not recommend working that way right <laughs> um but after hearing his uh, you know his story i thought well i've got a book that's probably halfway finished let's take 24 hours and just see what we can do in that 24 hours and i wrote i don't know probably you know 20 pages worth of rough drafts in a 24-hour period and it really fleshed some things out not finished not trying to get it finished but i know there's two um contest deadlines coming up in the next couple of months so now i'm gonna you know take a little more time to refine things and um we'll try to finish things by that deadline send it out and if it's not um you know, if it's not accepted there, that's fine. I'll, I'll be able to go back and rework it. You know, that's the other thing about deadlines too and about writing and art is you also have to surrender to the fact that it really won't ever be finished and it won't ever be perfect. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of ask, is it is it good enough now? Is it yes. ready enough now? And is there someone who's asking for it now? So let's make that the priority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and see if we can get it to a place where it's kind of okay at this point to show to someone. Yes. And and I think that's sort of at the heart of what I try to get at with sustainable productivity. Because if we define, in this particular instance, what we're talking about with publishing written works, if we define that as the best it can ever be, there will literally never be anything produced. There will be no productivity. Yeah. But if we just say, I'm going to, you know, sit down for until I get it done, if we say that's going to be eight hours a day, I mean, for me personally, that's not sustainable to, you know, bleed on a page or, you know, get my emotions together to get these words out or whatever it might be. Um, that's not something that I can do. If that's what it takes, yeah. then I don't, I can't do that. That That's not Absolutely not. Me. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably not healthy, quite honestly. <laughs> it's not. Um, I mean, I will, and, and this is a thing that I have experimented with extensively because I've had different, uh, you know, different chapters in my life. Uh, there were times when I could only write maybe one hour a day or on the weekends because otherwise I was teaching. I was certainly engaging with reading and writing, but I, mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, engaging with my own creativity. Um, of course, teaching is always a creative process too. You're always doing improv and they're always asking you questions and you've got to come up with the answers. Right. Uh, And then figure out how to do the rest of the lesson plan, even though you took that rabbit trail, which was legit and important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then 10 years later going, wait, no, I had a better answer to that question. (laughs) Um, but uh but in any event so like i've had periods in my life where i could only fit some writing in like an hour before work or an hour after work and then i've had periods in my life where there was no structure and i could write for eight hours a day if i wanted to 
never want to. Um, and I, I, I have friends who really do engage in the creative process like three to five hours a day mm-hmm. and then they go for a walk. Uh, and I believe, you know, Stephen King probably does it that way. And some other writers who are full-time writers can do that. Um, but that's not everyone. Mm-hmm. Anne Lamont in her book, Bird by Bird, she talks about how she only writes, I think, maybe two or three hours a day. And then she has things to do with the house and taking care of pets and being with other people. And that's mm-hmm. much more my speed. Um, I absolutely must have other things going on i do not want to write more than two hours a day i want to do a little in the morning maybe then i will do anything else anything else uh you know i've learned how to cook some elaborate recipes and i've listened to a lot of podcasts and a lot of ted talks Mm -hmm. and then usually in the evening it's like now you know i've had all those interesting experiences now i want to write a little bit more at the end of the day Mm-hmm. Um, and I could absolutely challenge myself to try to do eight hours a day. I could beat myself up about not being more productive, uh, you know, if I wanted to, but I've, I, I've come to understand we're all different and that's right. I am at peace with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And and that tangents into the, the last question I want to ask you, Tricia, before we get to our little rapid fire closeout. The last question I have is what do you say to people when they say that they are not creative or they don't have time to be creative? I beat them with a halibut. (laughs) Uh, The creativity halibut. Yeah. Uh I tell them flat out they're wrong. Um, you know, I think you have to, you know, I wouldn't say anything. I'd probably ask a lot of questions. Mm. Um, you know, we can define creativity different ways um i am not here to convert everyone to being a creative person uh but i would like for people to feel more comfortable thinking creatively and if they do want to produce something in a creative way that you know we traditionally think of as creative um i want folks to feel comfortable uh knowing that they can or you know, I I will say this, you know, my experience in the psychology of creativity program has taught me anything. It's um, we look at the four P's, which is personality, product, process. And I forget what the fourth one is. Maybe there were only three. Um, you know, some people have a personality that drives them to want to create. Uh, some people don't. Um but a lot of us get really hung up on the product. What is this product going to look like? And that's really not what you want to think about. What you want to think about is the process. How do I engage in this in a way that feels comfortable? How do I make an uncomfortable process more comfortable? How do I get into flow? Uh, There's wonderful researcher named Chiksamihai. His last name is Chiksamihai. Um, and he, I mean, if you just Google flow and mm-hmm. research on flow, you'll find him. Don't, don't try to spell his last name. Don't ask. Oh, I'll just go look at the books I have out yeah. here of his. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, but the point is to get yourself into a feeling of being, uh, you know, fully present and 
a lot of people like I don't care if you write a great poem I want you to have an experience at the beginning of the day of feeling fully present for me I feel more fully present when I'm writing something and the writing is good I might also feel that way when I'm having a great conversation like what we're doing now I might feel that way if I'm climbing a tree if I'm caramelizing some onions you know if I'm drinking some really good coffee um so for me you know i i care about writing i care about the product i want the product to be as beautiful as it is because also then when you go and you read something beautiful it can also put you in a state of flow but in all honesty like you know my primary concern my primary interest is how do you get to that state of flow what is it and then of course there's you know a million other beneficial um byproducts of experiencing that and of reading and writing and engaging in the arts and the you know creative field that there's other things that you know come along with it yeah yeah that's good i i just really encourage anybody who has some sort of a mental or emotional block against creativity. Oh, I don't have creative bone in my body or, oh, I can't even get down on the ground and play with my kids. I'm not creative. Well, you might not be able to get down on the floor and play trucks, but when you are voicing all of the voices in that bedtime book, (laughs) that's creativity. When you're just feeling like you could, you know, roll through the zoo and look at all the animals and talk about them. And then you're doing the voices of the animals and, like it's all how you define it. It doesn't have to be how your fourth grade art teacher defined it and they didn't like your pottery. Like you get to decide what creativity means. And you it's that gut feeling inside, like when you said mm-hmm. the, the piece of flow. That I think is a connection to creativity that I wish more people, especially women, would would shoot for and try to engage in. Yeah. Well, and I, I also want to say this too. It it's a muscle. Um, that you build it's absolutely a learned thing and I will say this I don't feel um like everything I do is super original uh I mean that's one of my areas where I you know have room for growth and and struggle and so forth um and I will say this as far as being a poet like the first stuff that I wrote was not uh what we in the business would call good um (laughs) you know it's not stuff that I particularly like or would want to reread now and you can come at it from an intellectual place I very much feel like I come to my writing and my creative process from an intellectual place you know you can tell because I have master's degree in the psychology of creativity I had to like read a lot of books to learn how to break into flow you know, um, I think Brene Brown is probably one who's like that too and has done a lot of research on things that, you know, maybe are very, others might think are more heart-centered than head-centered. Um, I had a professor in college that pointed to his head and said, we use a lot of this to get to this. And he pointed to his heart. And I feel like I do that as well. So, I mean, if you are a person who feels like you don't have a creative bone in your body, okay, fine. You have a mathematical bone, then you can find a way to use math to break into creativity i don't know start a chart uh give yourself a gold star every time you do something you feel might be um a little creative Mm -hmm. you know um play yeah yeah if you're a basketball player like you know just see if you can think of doing it a way that you haven't done it before 
Uh, you know, there's just lots of different ways to be creative and lots of different ways to break into it. And you don't have to be good at it when you start, you know, yes. you'll practice, you'll learn, you'll grow. Yes. I love that. Well, let's, um, let's start to wrap up and I've, I've got sort of a rapid fire list here. Three questions, sure. one for each dimension of the sustainable productivity, uh, model here. Number one, Tricia, what is the single most important thing you do for your health and fitness? <laughs> I joined a gym. <laughs> and I go to it. I was going to say, do you go to the gym? You know, I have to have a follow. So much for rapid fire. Then I'm going to ask some follow yeah, Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, sorry. I'll, okay. try. I'll try. I'll try. I and you go. go that's great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Number two, what are you reading right now? Um, I just finished reading a book of poems uh, by Angela... Pen, Kenya Redondo, and it's called Nature Felt But Never Apprehended. And it's a book of poems from Noemi Press. Um, and number three, the environmental surroundings. Where do you keep your car keys ideally? And do they actually land there when you enter the house? So this is a good one. Um, I just got a Hyundai Sonata, which is a hybrid car, and you don't have to have your keys to enter the car. Your keys just have to be nearby. Uh-huh. And that has been so great because my keys live in my purse. They never leave the purse. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to keep track of my purse than it is to keep track of something small like my keys. Yep. Yeah. Well, that is a good meet having your environment meet you where you are. Like let's not, you know, create a new a new thing. That's good. Mm -hmm. Well, anything that you want to share with listeners that we have not covered at this time? Well, you mentioned the Enneagram, so I don't know if they um, are all followers, but like I'm clearly a number seven on the Enneagram. <laughs> uh, my friend who is, you know, much more likely to finish one project and then finish it before she starts another project, she's a three. Really good to have those in your life to set, you know, um, teach you new things. I also am married to a five. And my husband for years would tell me, don't start new projects. And I'm like, you can't tell me that because I, I will. And if you tell me not to, it's like telling a wild horse not to run free. <laughs> and, um, and so he's developed this new skill meeting me halfway where he says like, that is a great project for next year. Mm -hmm. Once we finish the projects we started this year, and that is a really good way to kind of meet, meet halfway. And to be honest, usually like half the projects, if I can't start them immediately, like I, they kind of die on the vine. Um, and then the projects that I am still excited about a year later, like those are projects that are worth pursuing. So it's been a really good way to sort of um, mm -hmm. find some balance and question sometimes the chaos. So if I can use a metaphor, it's like, go on a date with everything that comes your way, but really think about it before you get married. Yes. You know? Yep. It doesn't have to be a no, maybe it's not yet. Yeah. It's or not, not yet. this or not like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah, it yeah. sounds like when you hear a no immediately, you're like, Oh yeah. And you roll up your yeah. sleeves and you kind of dive down that. So it's yes. so important to know ourselves 
So I, I love that uh, Enneagram 7 is, and I'm a 1. I know you and I have talked about that, and anybody listening that knows Enneagram is not going to be surprised. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the mic with me today, Tricia. Um, I look forward to our next coffee. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Susan, for having me. And yes. um, yeah, I'll look forward to seeing you in person soon. Hey, listeners, it is Susan, and it's been a couple days since I was on the microphone with Tricia. And she sent me an email after the fact with a poem that she wanted to share with everyone. And I think it's just fantastic. So I'm going to read it and then I will also find a link to it or somehow get it. So if you want to print it out and have it, you're certainly welcome to. The title is Walk, Don't Run. And this is by Rob Bell. Walk, don't run. That's it. Walk, don't run. Slow down, breathe deeply, and open your eyes because there's a whole world right here within this one. The bush doesn't suddenly catch on fire. It's been burning the whole time. Moses is simply moving slowly enough to see it, and when he does, he takes off his sandals. Not because the ground has suddenly become holy, but because he's just now becoming aware that the ground has been holy the whole time. Efficiency is not God's highest goal for your life, Neither is busyness, or how many things you can get done in one day, or speed, or even success. But walking, which leads to seeing, now that's something. That's the invitation for every one of us today, and every day, in every conversation, interaction, event, and moment, to walk, not run, and in doing so, to see a whole world right here within this one. And that's where I want to leave you for the week. Until we meet next week, remember to create results in a way that you can sustain and that are productive for you. Take care. You have just listened to the Sustainable Productivity Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you might like what you read. Come to SustainableSue.com to read more and subscribe to have the weekly message sent to your inbox. You can also get show notes, including links to things discussed in the episode there. SustainableSue.com consider sharing this episode with a friend. The more you share the message about sustainable productivity, the more we can create a world where we are all more engaged in our lives. Keep going, friends. As Devin Durant says, small efforts sustained over time can produce significant results. Have a good week.